Welcome, my lords, to the Well-Earned Comforts Podcast. I'm Sam. And I'm Seth. Thank you for joining us on the Walls of Isengard as we explore the many works of Tolkien and discuss life. We're glad to have you as part of our fellowship, as there's no telling where we'll be swept off to. I hope you enjoyed our last conversation on our podcast with Michael. That was a really eye-opening podcast for me, but we did get to skip our Babbling Like Butterbur, our updates on how Seth and I are doing. So we're going to just jump right into that and Babbling Like Butterbur. So Seth, what's uh, what's new in your life? Not much, just another, you know, another day on the grind that keeps coming at Little Ev's uh, about four, four and a half months old now. So she's starting to become a lot more interactive, which I really enjoy. I've gotten to the point where I can toss her up in the air and get a smile out of her or, you know, grab her belly and tickle her and she enjoys it. Um, so That's cool. I'm really, I'm really enjoying this phase where, I don't know, she's more interactive, but she's still also super cuddly and just wants to be helped. So I'm, I'm really enjoying uh, this phase of being a father. Yeah, that dad life. That's awesome. How's your, how's your back doing and your hip? I know you've had a couple injuries that have kept you from being as active as you'd like. Yeah, uh, the hip one kind of scared me for a minute because I was, it happened during a hockey game where I ended up on my knees uh, kind of in the splits position. A kid cross-checked me from behind and made me go into the splits even more. Mm. Um, and a lot of people probably don't know this, but both Sam and I actually uh, had bilateral hip arthroscopies in high when we were each in high school. Um, fancy way of saying we had pretty significant hip surgeries. And it really wasn't that bad. I definitely felt it. And then the next day I woke up and I couldn't walk. I couldn't lift my leg up. It was the weirdest thing in the world. Mm. And I actually went to the ER to get an x-ray, which I really wanted a, an MRI, but they wouldn't do it at that time just because I don't have a PCP or any doctor out here. So, and it was a Sunday. So it was like, I work tomorrow. I can't hardly walk. I don't know what to do. I would go to the sure. ER um, knowing that they wouldn't, they wouldn't have anything to tell me actually. They right. would just be like, Oh, the x-ray is negative, which I know it's not structural uh, mm -hmm. in that sense. So long story short, at the end of the day, I was trying to get up the stairs and I, my hip popped really bad. And it was super audible. Like I heard it, I felt it. And all of a sudden it was like, wow, the pain is like 80% better just instantly. Wow. So I wonder if it was just some scar tissue that got caught or maybe, you know, slightly dislocated or something. I don't really know. Um, long story short, they, they did a arthroscopy um, or not an arthroscopy and uh, an MRA. So an MRI except an arthrogram included where they inject a dye into my hip joint, uh, which you know about that. You had that done before your surgeries yep. as well. And the results of that were basically, hey, nothing, nothing tore. So I'm, I'm good on that front. It's just a matter of getting the hips to cooperate. And then the back, I'm still dealing with uh, the slip disc in my back. It's been like four months now. I'm pretty sure it happened from sleeping on the couch multiple nights with Evelyn when she was a newborn um, just to give Amanda some sleep. I'm pretty sure that's what caused it, but I'm still doing physical therapy for it and trying to rehab it. And it's not really going too well, but <laughs> we'll see. Jeez, dude, that sounds pretty intense. I'm glad that your hip's doing a lot better. I was wondering if it was just like caught scar tissue or something, but I'm sure that 
like when it popped did it did was it painful like that initial pop the initial pop was painful and then within like 15 seconds i had instant relief and i was like it just i was like oh ow that whoa okay all right this uh, i feel better now it was it was strange i mean your hips pop too i mean you know how it is where sometimes it gets caught but the thing is it was caught like that and i felt unstable with some of like if i was walking up or down the stairs it was like i don't want to have to like push hard because i'm afraid that like something will come out um and it was super painful i couldn't do any knee flexion i couldn't do any abduction or adduction with my leg like bringing the leg in or out any type of hip external rotation was insanely painful like I just had no range of motion without excruciating pain. Then it popped and like 80% of the pain went away within 15 seconds. Wow. <laughs> so I'm thankful for that. Cause I was able to go to work the next day and just take it easy for a little bit, but sure. the, you know, the hip is getting better for sure. Yeah, man. Yeah. Well, what about for you guys? Uh, well, everything's been pretty busy around here. We've been doing well though. I mean, we're, training for our spartan race in uh, on the 19th so it's in just a couple weeks now a few weeks it's our half marathon with 30 obstacles and uh, it's in north carolina so hopefully we don't have any bad weather because apparently last uh, like two years ago they did one and it was just pouring rain the entire time people were getting hypothermia and all kinds of things because you have to like there's there's water walks there's like certain things that you have to do in water on top of that so uh, praying for no rain that'd be that'd be ideal but we've been doing a lot of training for that which has been both fun but also awful just like i hate running so much and like we can't train for the obstacles really other than just doing grip strength stuff at the gym which we've been doing sure. but a lot of just our training has just been running and so we have gotten up to 10 miles running on the trail which is you know it feels fine but i just i don't like running at all like i get mile seven and i'm just bored <laughs> like yeah. i i've been either playing a song in my head for too long or sometimes i'll pray while i run or sometimes i just like my mind goes blank and i'm like i just I, this is dumb why am i doing this because there's no stimulation and that's that's the cool thing about a spartan race is there's lots of stimulation throughout the run and and you it makes you want to run to the next obstacle and so uh this has just been uh, a bit of a drag not not a, not a drag it's been a good thing but it's every Saturday morning that we've been doing those longer runs. And so just, and it messes with my weight training and other things like that too. I was lifting this morning and I was just squatting and I could only get three sets of three at three sixty five, which used to be pretty easy for me. And yeah. right now just with all the running, it was a struggle. So uh, all that to say, we were doing good. Otherwise we just finished our foster class uh, training. So we are pretty much almost done with all the certifications. We have a few more online trainings that the state needs to uh, needs us to do, and then they're gonna look at our house again. We need to make sure that all all things are up to code. I need to put batteries in our our uh, smoke detectors. <laughs> we need to buy wow. a, uh, a uh, fire extinguisher and a couple other things. But hmm. we should be good to go in in January for for fostering. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, pretty exciting stuff for for that side of things. But yeah, yeah that's I mean that's a going to be a huge huge adjustment for you guys. But I know mm-hmm. obviously throughout this whole process, if you didn't want to do it, you could have turned back at any point. So yeah, I kind of just one step closer every time. Yeah, honestly, like I felt like at one point or another, I was going to feel like yeah, I don't know if I really want to do this. This is going to be like a lot of work. This is going to be 
a big inconvenience on our lives, just, you know, in, inviting another student to our home that we don't know at all, that might have a lot of trauma, that might need a lot of attention, all these kind of things. But after every single class, it, we just looked at each other and we're like, we want to do this even more now. Like, we just mm. know the need is there and our hearts are, you know, breaking for these kids that live in such broken homes. And so we we're still very excited about it. And obviously we're not going in with it with the expectation that it's going to be easy or even fun, but sure. we, we know that this is what God wants for us. And we're excited that uh, we're being obedient and, and that it's, you know, it's something that he calls us to do and we're excited. So um, how, how long of a commitment is it? Like, do you sign a contract or something to f- be a foster home for six months, a year, two years? No, we're going through a private uh, organization called All God's Children, and so they don't have necessarily a contract. Um, but they, you know, if you are placed with a student with a child, um, you uh, have to be with that kid for as long as you know they are in the foster care system. As long as that kid wants to be with you, as long as you want to be with that kid, you can like say, "Hey, I I need to opt out for whatever reason." It's pretty much like a two weeks notice kind of thing, so they can find another home for that that sure. child or children if there's multiple. Um, but yeah, the expectation is you're going to be with them for, you know, for as long as they need them. And so some of those kids, you know, the, the process is just adoption because, you know, bio parents, biological parents are just not going to be able to figure out their lives to bring them back into their homes. And so, um, a lot of those, especially the older, older kids, a lot of that is their story is they just are eventually either adopted or they just age out of the foster system and then they're an adult in the world. And so, um, you know, our, our hope is, I mean, thankfully we're not tied down to anything, but our hope is that we get a student or a child and, and we just can, again, the goal is to re reunite with foster or with bio parents, but, um, we, we're just, our goal is just love on them as long as we have them. And if that includes adoption, then great, but you know, we'll, we'll see. Sure. Yeah. There's no, there's no telling where you may be swept off to. Exactly. Well done. Well done. That's a great seg- uh, segue to our next segment, Riddles in the Dark. Uh, Riddles in the Dark has been a bit tough on me lately. I feel like I haven't really gotten one in a couple, uh, a couple episodes here. So time well, to redeem myself. Why don't you, uh, you go first? There's actually one that I kind of want to throw at you. Um, I know that it's not. It's cheating. It's cheating to throw one at you, um, but it's one of my favorite. Yeah, I, I mean, we talked about this not that long ago, so I wouldn't I'd be I'd be surprised if you didn't get it, but it's a little little obscure. So I'll give it a try. Give it a try. Might as well. All right. So it seems, he said, but let us not be overthrown at the final test of whom old renounced the shadow and the ring. In sorrow we must go, but not in despair. Behold, we are not bound forever to the circles of the world, and beyond them is more than a memory. Farewell. Isn't that just the end of the trilogy? And at the, at the Grey Havens? No. No. Like I said, it's, it's a little out there. Mm. But we did talk about it not that long ago. Read it again. Alright. So it seems, he said, but let us not be overthrown at the final test. Who of old renounced the shadow and the ring? In sorrow we must go, but not in despair. Behold, we are not uh, bound forever to the circles of the world, and beyond them is more than a memory. Farewell. So this is somebody's death. I, 
You're the one that's supposed <laughs> to tell me, bud. Uh, I think... I mean, part of me wanted to say it's the parting words of Theoden, but I don't think that's true. Um, but I do feel like it is somebody's death. We do, okay, just kind of rack your brain for a second. The previous episodes we've done, we literally have read that exact quote. I know, it's that it sounds very, very familiar. <laughs> it sounds like it's in the appendices with... Estelle, Estelle. Yeah, died. yeah. See, you, you cheater. It wasn't even part of the. This is the appendices, the the death of Aragorn. I was like, there you go. I know this See? is. I was, but I was thinking the trilogy. I was thinking of like not in the appendices. You cheater. I mean, it's all in one, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Okay. I never letting you choose something on your own again. That's all fair. right. Well, I I found one that was random and per the rules we'll see if you get it all right let's see see. this is going to be three different people speaking of dialogue so just i'm giving you a hint there that's that's helpful okay dangerous or not a real sunrise is mighty welcome but the mountains are ahead of us said the other we must have turned eastward in the night no said the third but you see further ahead in the clear light Beyond those peaks, and the range bends round southwest. There are many maps in Elrond's house, but I suppose you never took, never thought to look at them. Well, that's Mary speaking to Pippin. I know nope. that much. What? Nope. You're, are you being serious? I'm being serious. You're wrong. I mean, that does happen later, but no. They're talking about the mountain range. I don't know the name of the chapter. It's when they leave Rivendale before they get to the Mines of Moria, before they try going up Carotheros, right? You are correct. The Ring Goes South is the name of the chapter. Okay. So who um, are the other two people? It's not, Ma- it's not uh, Mary. Maybe it, it's got to be Frodo talking to Pippin, though. I know Pippin is the one that's being told. Like, yes. You didn't look at the map. Yes. Because that's just uh, so it's got to probably it's not Sam saying that to him. So it's got to be Frodo. And then with like the mountains curving and stuff, that part, is that Gimli? No, no. So actually, Frodo is the one that says dangerous or not. A real sunrise is mighty welcome. And then Pippin says, but the mountains are ahead of us. We must have turned eastward in the night. And then Gandalf says, no. But you see further ahead in the clear light. Beyond those peaks, the range bends around southwest. There are many maps in Elrond's house, but I suppose you never thought to look at them. Of course it's Gandalf reprimanding Pippin. Come on. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay, all right, all right, all right. But then Pippin says, yes, I did sometimes on the next page. But I don't remember. <laughs> all right, you know what? Just because I'm feeling, feeling generous, let me... Uh... Oh, do I get a second chance? Uh, yes, and this one actually is very ob- obscure as well, but fantastic. Um, <laughs> wild men go quick on feet, said Blank. Okay. Way is wide for four horses in Stonebury Gone. Valley. Yeah, okay, there you go. Stonebury yeah. Gone. Uh, I don't remember the name of the chapter, it's in the Return of the King. The Riders of Rohan are on their way to Gondor to save Minas Tirith. There, they just talk Gone, Gone, the wild wild guy it's um, funny because i listen to the audiobooks and he pronounces it like han bully han so to hear uh, you say it gone but it, there is a g so i don't know if it's silent or what you know you're probably right i again i've only read it, it well i've i've listened to it a long right. time ago but 
most recently I read it, and so here I think it is Hanburyon actually, not Hanburyon. Yeah. Either way, anyway. well done. That was quick. You got that quick. It is a very distinct way of talking, though. Uh, yeah, it really is. But I, I'm kind of glad. That's one thing. As much as I would have loved to see him and like the Wildmen in the movies, I'm glad that Peter Jackson didn't add that in. It would just be like another 30 minutes of something kind of cool, but like really not necessary to the story at all. Yeah, that's fair. I'll give you that. I mean, it, it sucks that we don't get to hear about the Wildmen and they don't get their due diligence in their honor. But uh, yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. Moving on to the meat and potatoes of the podcast. So we talked about, we promised uh, that we would finish our discussion on Numenor, and we're going to do one more podcast after this one on Numenor, and then we're going to jump into something super exciting that both Seth and I are really pumped about. It's going to be a read-along of the Children of Hurin. So this is one of Seth's favorite uh, stories from Tolkien um, outside of just the the trilogy and The Hobbit, and we're excited to read it along with you guys. So we encourage you guys to get a copy of Children of Hurin if you don't already have one, or go on Audible and get one. And what we're going to do is we're just really going to take it chapter by chapter. We're not going to read it aloud on the podcast. That would be um, probably we'd butcher all the wording and and probably not the greatest storytellers, but we will discuss and deep dive each, each chapter and kind of give more context to all the things that are happening. So if you've ever been curious about the children of Hurin and wanted to give that a shot but just felt like you weren't maybe capable of understanding everything going on uh, that's kind of what we're hoping to do so we hope you will join us on that adventure where we may know where our feet sweep off to swept off to sweep off to i don't know <laughs> I that one's on to you bud yeah anyway uh yeah let's jump into meat and potatoes where we are talking about the kings and queens of numenor yeah so like sam said we're gonna do this episode where this kind of like a chronolo- uh, chronology, is that the right word? Um, genealogy. And, well, I know genealogy, but like in chronological order, we're going to yeah. skip a few. It's not just a genealogy, but it's some of the prominent kings of Numenor uh, and queens and kind of what they did, what their personalities were like, how they ruled, stuff like that. Uh, we're getting most of this information from the Unfinished Tales. There's the line of Elros, the kings of Numenor uh, chapter. So a lot, that's where a lot of this is coming from. Uh, and then next week, we'll actually, we'll save kind of the ending of this one. And then next week, we'll go into the Akalabeth, which is the fall of Numenor. And we'll kind of explain everything that has to do with Farazan capturing Sauron and Sauron's influence on Numenor and the eventual uh, flood that uh, overtakes Numenor. So that's kind of where we're going before we jump into Children of Hurin. So to start us off, though, we're just going to start talking uh, kings. I will say when we were putting this together, there's a handful that we skip over just because they don't really do much. Uh, there's not much that is really interesting about them. So we just kind of pick some of the prominent ones, but there's still a handful uh, to go over. So yeah, just definitely. a little backstory here. Uh, in all, there were 25 rulers during the Second Age for Numenor uh, that began with Elros Tarminator and ended with Arpharazon. And the span of their reign lasted 3,287 years. So if you think about it, there were only 25 rulers in 3,287 years. That's kind of, that's kind of insane. It shows the long life uh, gift of the Dunedain and the Numenorians uh, that they had, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and like Sam just said, they were actually granted uh, the gift of life that averaged three times the lifespan of the the i guess the middlemen of middle earth uh those that were not of the line of elros or the numenorians 
Uh, it was tradition, actually, to pass the scepter from one uh, king to his successor before they died and while they were still in the vigor of health and mind. So instead of dying on, you'll see it, this actually changes later on. Um, it actually lasted up until the 15th ruler of Numenor, uh, who officially changed it to be after the death. But I think that's kind of a cool tradition that the king would give up his his kingship while still in the vigor of health and mind. And this kind of goes back to the, the Dunedain. They were able to lay down their, we talked a little bit about this with uh, Aragorn and Arwen, but they're able to lay down their life uh, while they're still healthy and of sound mind. They didn't, they didn't decay, or I guess what I'm trying to say is the decay was rapidly, it rapidly progressed near the end of their life. So they could lay down their life before that decay happened. And that's what most of them chose to do so that the lasting memory of them was still in full health and of strong mind. Uh, so the history of Numenor and the kings can really be broken down into the, the faithful and the kingsmen. The kingsmen obviously uh, are at odds with the faithful, as you'll see coming in here. Um, and then just a little bit of a note here, the prefix before any of the names, the tar, um, dash, whatever name, like tar miniature uh, for Elros, the tar is a prefix in Quenya that is high. It stands for high or noble. Um, and Quen the reason Quenya is it was considered the most noble language because that's what was spoken in the uttermost west. Uh, and then after after the transition, as we'll get to here in a little bit, the Quinya prefix was gotten rid of and the Adunaic prefix R, so like R far is on, uh, that a lot of the rulers started to go with that. Um, so yeah. Yeah, so let's uh, jump in with the first king of Numenor. Seth mentioned Elros Tar Minyatar. Um, he was the son of Arindil. We've talked a lot about him already, uh, just in, in brief topics of other discussions. But he's the half-brother of Elrond, and he chose to follow after his father and remain mortal while receiving the gift of Numenor from the Valar. And this is something that I was hoping we'd see in the Rings of Power, is maybe the, the him and his brother and that choice. Um, obviously, we don't get to see that. And when uh, he's mentioned in the Rings of Power, he is long, long dead. Uh, but he lived longer than any other king, and he ruled for 410 years. So one thing, too, I want to add, it was interesting last week talking with Michael and hearing that Tolkien was a monarchist and how he was like very fascinated with just the idea of kings and queens. And so yeah. I think it's really interesting. A lot of people be like, why do you need all this genealogy and histories of the kings and queens? Well, I mean, that makes sense to me since, you know, what we heard from from Michael about that topic. But yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that either. I was I was pretty surprised by that. But at the same time, it makes sense with, you know, everything he wrote. And like you said, how much time and effort he puts into the genealogies and histories. Mm -hmm. um, so after uh, Elros, we're actually going to skip ahead to the fourth king. And this was Tar Elendil. And this was not Elendil the Tall that you uh, <laughs> learn of near the end. That is Aragorn's ancestor. This is actually the ancestor of Elendil the Tall, <laughs> Tar Elendil. Um, he was actually known for making books uh, with his own hands based on the lore and legends uh, that were gathered by his grandfather. Uh, and his grandfather was 
Vardamir, I, I can never say it, Vardamir Nolimon, who was the son of Elros, and he actually didn't take the throne because Elros lived for so long. Uh, he kind of just got passed over, but he still did a lot of collecting of lore and everything. Um, so Tar Elendel married really late in life, and his eldest child was a daughter named Silmarion, uh, whose son was Valendel. And this is important because of Valendel came the Lords of Andunie, which ultimately was the line of Elendel the Tall, who became the king of Gondor and Arnor. So uh, this is kind of where the tree the genealogical tree splits in a way you still have the line of elros that is going down when that's where the kings come from but the lords of andunye uh is where elendel the tall comes from and so he can be traced back all the way up to elros so uh just a kind of interesting aside there yeah he's still of noble birth in a sense just not in the line of kingship so next, we have the fifth king of Numenor, Tar uh, Meneldor, and he was known for his love of stars, and he built a watchtower towards the sky in Forastar. So you remember if our uh, genealogy, or not genealogy, but uh, geography of Numenor in our last podcast, uh, where Forastar was. Um, but he was known to be wise and gentle and patient, but his reign was actually cut short and unexpected because he resigned um, after his son Alderion received a letter from Gilgalad of Linden asking for aid, which is interesting as we see, you know, the faithful being the elf friends, the Elendili, the elf friends, and then the uh, kingsmen who want nothing to do with the elves. But this is uh, just a, a, what the letter said from Gilgalad. Long have I owed you thanks, for you have so many times sent me your son Alderion, the greatest elf friend that is now among men as I deem. This is time I ask for your pardon, if I have detained him overlong in my service, for I had great need of the knowledge of men and their tongues which he alone possesses. He has dared many perils to bring, my, bring me counsel. Of my need, he will speak to you, yet he does not guess how great it is, being young and full of hope. Therefore I write this for the eyes of the king of Numenor only. Again, you see a lot different Gilgalad in, Lord of the, er, in uh, Tolkien's work as you see in uh, the Amazon's work of Gilgalad. Uh, so, yeah. So, <laughs> this actually comes from the story of uh, Alderion and Erendis, which we'll talk about Alderion here in a second. He's the son of of Meneldor. Uh, but the kind of the context of this is Alderion wants to sail around before he becomes king. He doesn't even really want the kingship. He he actually founds the the guild of venturers and he's often abroad sailing to middle earth uh he's actually meets up with Kieran himself and learns shipwright um yeah. right shipwritery i don't know he he becomes a shipwright uh <laughs> under the tutelage of Kieran uh and he takes all that knowledge back and he works with Gilgalad cuz at this point um and rings of power doesn't do this justice because of the time compression but at this point Gilgalad's starting to sense that power of Sauron building up and he's starting to fear it and this is kind of the first time you hear about it in the second age and Gilgalad gets actually a lot of help from Alderion the son of Tarman Eldor and this letter that Sam just read that's just a portion of it um, but after reading, there's a lot of strife between Meneldor and Alderion, and back and forth they go because Meneldor wants him to get married and settle down and take his his you know place as king. 
in Numenor and Alderion says, no, there's, there's bigger stuff going on. I need to be at sea. I need to, you know, be in middle earth, helping out Gilgalad and all this stuff. Um, yeah. so it's actually a really interesting story. Uh, but kind of jumping back onto Tar Eldarion, he's known for planting just massive, massive groves of trees. And this is because he needed to get timber for his ships and his shipyards. And so he didn't want to cut down all the forests of, of Numenor and leave them unplanted and just barren, uh, which is interesting because, you know, that really just shows Tolkien's love for, for nature. He doesn't pretty much every character that is, you know, a good character uh, in, in Tolkien's writings has that respect for nature and they, they don't want to take without giving back to nature. Yeah. yeah, They replenish anything that they use. So yeah, that's interesting. Tolkien wouldn't say that like, I wouldn't cut down a tree. It's just that I would make sure that there's at least one more planted for it. Right. That's cool. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so Alderion, there's a whole short story. It's, you know, probably like 20, 30 pages in the unfinished tales about Eldarion and Erendis. And it's really a tragic tale. Um, they have a interesting love story where he's constantly trying to be in the guild adventurers and going out to sea. And she's constantly trying to pull him back to Numenor uh, to be with her. And they go back and forth. And ultimately they do fall in love. They end up getting married. Um, but unfortunately it becomes very bitter, especially due to uh this letter that he gets uh from Gilgalad he, he really feels and by he I mean Eldarion really feels that his place is elsewhere and eventually they just become very bitter and hateful towards each other and they actually end up separating um and Arendis had no love for the sea she loved Numenor she loved the trees she loved the sights and the the beaches and the breezes and all of that stuff and so they were always at odds um which like I said they ended up separating in a very bitter bitter way and unfortunately their child uh Tar and Kalime ended up uh kind of suffering from that uh and that was their only child yeah, but uh, throughout her suffering, she does become the first ruling queen of Numenor, and it's interesting. She ruled lo- or she reigned longer than any previous king, aside from Elros, obviously, and yet she was unmarried. So she stayed single the entire time that she she ruled. She's pretty much like the Queen Elizabeth, right, of uh, of Numenor, uh, so to speak. But after being pressured to give up the throne, as she had no heir, she married and gave birth to one son. And after the birth of her son, she was, uh, there was strife between her and her husband, whose name was Halakar, for she was proud and willful, as Tolkien would put it. And so, obviously, she's very focused on her, her ruling and her reign, and she doesn't necessarily want to pass on that scepter like we've uh, seen as the tradition to do so. Um, but also, after the passing of her father, Alderion, she neglected all of his policies and gave no further aid to Gilglad. So after Tar and Kalime, we actually jump ahead to the 11th uh, ruler of Numenor, and that's Tar Minyastor. Uh, and he built a high tower on the hill of Oromet, nigh to Indunye and the west shores. And from there, he would spend great times, or spend great time, great periods of time. From there, he would spend great periods of time gazing out west. Um, and so he he really is having that longing to go west, which, as we know from before, there's the ban of the Valar. They cannot go west. They can't sail west past where they can see the island. Um, 
And so he built a tower and actually just kind of sat at the in the tower on this hill, just gazing west, longing for that. Um, and he loved the Eldar, but he envied them. And he began yearning for the West, and that yearning really started to grow deeper in all the hearts of the Numenorians. Um, but he, they, they really, this is where they started envying the Eldar uh, and their long life. But the good thing about Tarminister is he actually sent out great fleets of ships to the aid of Gilgalad during their first war with Sauron. So, uh, Tar and Kalime was the seventh ruler, and she neglected all of Alderion's policies, and then it took till the eleventh king for them to actually end up sending aid to, to Gilgalad. Yeah, then we go to uh, the twelfth king of Numenor, Tar Siryatan. Siryatan? I don't know. Siryatan. Tar Siryatan, we'll go with, <laughs> is described as a mighty king but greedy of wealth so he obviously uh is one of those men that just wants his things and has a love for for gold for wealth um, but especially for his royal ships he built a great fleet of royal ships and brought back many gems and metals from many uh, middle earth and oppressed those men who would mine those gems for him and so he constrained his father to yield the scepter before his free will and it is thought that this was the first coming of the shadow that had occurred. Yeah, so that's kind of, you can see him clinging, starting to cling to life. So this is only the 12th ruler of, um, of Numenor, and they're already starting to cling for life. By the time you get to Farazan, who's the 25th, at that point, they are long gone. They are doing whatever they can to cling to life. Um, so after uh, the 12th ruler, onto the 13th, we've got Tar Atanamir, and he's known as the Great. And he's called the great because he was the first to actually refuse to lay down his life or or uh, surrender the scepter, as was tradition. So he died perforce rather than laying his life down uh, by his free will, like we had talked earlier. Uh, and then this is also where he uh, refused to give up the scepter before he died. So Tar Siriatan, the one right, the king right before him, or Kiriatan, or however you want to say it, uh, he forced his father to give up the scepter, and then his son Taratanamir refused to give it up. So it's kind of an interesting, uh, interesting little setup there between father and son. Um, so he he followed in his father's footsteps, and he extracted great tribute from the men of Middle Earth, and continued to oppress them. And in his time, the shadow really first fell upon Numenor. And those that followed him began to speak openly against the ban of the Valar. So they started to question, like, who are the Valar to say that we can't sail west? Like, that's where the Undying Lands are. That's where immortality is. What, who, who are they to get to say that we don't deserve that? Um, so at this point, they still feared the Lords of the West. They still feared the Valar. They didn't want to cross them or be at odds with them, but they started to defy, or they started to... Uh, to, to question them, even though they didn't necessarily defy them yet. And this is really where the Kingsmen uh, started to start to branch away. Uh, and then this is where that divide between the faithful and the Kingsmen occurs. Yeah. And then we have uh, an influential King Tar on Kaliman. Um, and he was, was one of obviously one of the Kingsmen and, and 
this this is where the rift between the Kingsmen and the faithful begins to grow and begins to spread. So you, again, like Seth said, you have these these people questioning the Valar, questioning why don't we have immortality? And then the, the faithful are like, no, we we are okay with this gift. We're blessed, really. We should be happy with what we have. And and yet the Kingsmen they they forsook the use of Elven languages and refused to teach them to their children. So that's again where you see the the difference between the Tar and the R prefects, as we'll see in this next king. Yeah, so this is, I mean, kind of when in Rings of Power, when they're always like glaring at Gladriel. Granted, it's probably because she showed up there when she never did. Um, <laughs> that's probably why they're glaring. But uh, this is that rift that starts to form. So by this, by the point in time that the show is supposedly taking place, this this hate for the elves and this envy for them and their immortality has really reached a deep level to the point where. They like not even their great grandfathers have spoken uh, Quenya or Senderin or any of the elven languages. Uh, so then, jumping on to the next king here, we actually kind of skip ahead to the 18th king, uh, and that was Tar Kamakil slash R Belzegar. So he was a great captain and won many lands along the coasts of Middle Earth, and thus kindled the hatred of Sauron. So he went to Middle Earth and started creating. Um, coastline cities and fortresses and actually started to really piss off Sauron because Sauron was like, all right, I, I have something else to contend with now. Um, and he actually, this is the first king that decided to take the name uh, or the prefix R instead of Tar uh, and decided to go by R Belzegar. And he was the first king to have his name spoken in Adunaic, which was the language of the Numenorians. Yeah, and then next, the 20th king is Ar Adunakar, um, is what I believe it says. And again, at the, we've talked about this in length already, but just Tolkien's knowledge of language and his, his use of the specific letters for each person and character kind of creates this idea of who this person is, even before you read their their biography. You, you kind of know, uh, okay, this guy is an Ar Adunakar, like he is that hard uh, hard K there. He's probably not going to be somebody I admire. He's probably not going to be somebody that I think is going to be very fair or wise. And and sure enough, we see that he takes the scepter with the title of the Adunaic and he outlaws Elven tongue completely and refuses it to be taught. So again, this is where uh, you just see it's it's selfish and it's it's I guess pretentious even a little bit for for the king to just outlaw any kind of knowledge of anybody else other than them. And yet the the faithful, they maintained the language in secret and they didn't allow elven ships from Eresea to come, but they did come in secret and, and they didn't stay for long. So so the faithful wanted to make sure that we were able to still speak these languages in secret. And I think that's kind of what they were trying to portray with Elindil speaking uh, in Elvish to Galadriel and the Rings of Power. But again, without this knowledge, you don't really understand the significance behind the their little transaction and Elendil being able to speak in and Quenya. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Actually, both of those. Um when when he speaks in Quenya to Galadriel and and she, it kind of catches her off guard, they didn't really give much context for that. They they didn't show any persecution of the language or any banning of it. They basically just said, We hate elves. And so it didn't mm -hmm. really have the same meaning. Um and then I actually really liked your point about uh the language and how Tolkien writes it and that kind of going back to uh the his uh the 18th king Har Kamakil so that's the Quenyuk name and then when it switched to 
uh, Adunaic, he becomes Al Belzegar. And with that hard Z and that hard G, kind of like Dalrog, you know, or Melkor yeah. or Morgoth. Like, just it's interesting to me because Tar Kamakil doesn't sound too bad, but then when he takes the name of more of like a villain, I guess, when he when he's getting rid of the old ways and trying to issue in the new Adunaic way, it, it it's kind of a more evil sounding name, like you pointed out. Yeah. Um, and so moving on here to the 23rd ruler, uh, kind of along those same name, same things. His name is Argilmazor. So again, that hard Z that makes it sound, uh, you know, evil really. And he was actually considered the greatest enemy of the faithful. And he didn't allow elven tongues to um, be spoken anywhere at all. And he didn't allow any of the Eldar to set foot on land. And then he punished those who tried to welcome the Eldar. Because from time to time, the Eldar from Arisea, uh, which is an island in the far uttermost uh, west, they would sail and visit and share knowledge and trade and stuff like that. But at this point, our Gilmazor... It's kind of a hard one to pronounce, but Argilmazor would would actually punish those who accepted the elves and allowed them to land. Um, and he also never went to the Hollow of Eru and never worshipped Eru, and he it's said that he revered nothing. Um, so if you remember from the previous episode we did on Numenor, how out in the Minotarma with the giant mountain, there was you know such reverence for Eru, nobody would speak except the king. And even the king would only speak on three occasions. Um, and so it's said that he, Argilmazor never went up there. He didn't revere anything. It was basically, I am Lord of the Earth. That's kind of the, the vibe you get from him. Um, and then he in, actually, he, his wife, uh, Enzelbeth, and so that must be an Adunaic name. Uh, so I wonder if there's a Quenyic name for her, because I bet it's a more pretty sounding name. Yeah, probably. Um, but his wife was secretly of the faithful, and there was little love between her and Argilmazor. Uh, and so they actually had two sons. The elder son took after his mother uh, and was of like mind with her in the fact that she was kind of he was kind of of the faithful and wanted to preserve some of the older traditions and fear the Valar and respect them. And the younger son... Uh, I didn't write down his name, but the younger son was of like mind to his father. And Argilmazor would have actually passed the throne to his younger son had the law permitted it, but it didn't. Um, and so his son, the eldest one, actually is Tar Palantir. Uh, so you can see back to the Quenyuk name of Tar versus R, and this is Tar Palantir that you actually see on his deathbed in the Rings of Power. Uh, they do a horrible job with him because he's like this kooky, decrepit old man. Um, but he actually repented of all the ways of his father, and he would have returned the friendship with the Eldar and the Lords of the West if he was able to. But you can see how many generations it took to kind of get rid of all that. It's like he can't correct all this in, in one in one uh one lifetime um and the reason they called him Tal tar palantir was he was farsighted of both sight and mind and people considered him to be a true seer uh i didn't do enough research into him but i wonder if he actually is kind of if it's legit that he saw the vision of the destruction of numenor um i yeah. I, I would give the showrunners credit if that's the case even though they used an actual palantir that didn't exist in the show um, yeah 
<laughs> so I don't know. But his name is Palantir, um, so he must have had a Palantir, right? Like, that just, <laughs> Sure, sure. I feel like that's kind of the level of research they did. Like, oh, his name is Palantir. He must have had Palantirs. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's about the extent of it. Um, but he actually prophesied that when the White Tree died, the line of kings would also perish. So that is something they did okay in the show, uh, where you saw the the White Tree starting to shed its leaves and Tarmuriel, or I guess Muriel at the time, looking up at the at the tree and with that concern on her face. Cause she, she understood this. Um, so he married late, uh, Tar Palantir married late and he only had one daughter. He didn't have a son. And that daughter's name was Muriel. Uh, and she would have succeeded her father and become a ruling queen of Numenor. However, uh, she gets usurped and quite frankly, falls out of the story. <laughs> Don't you mean that she goes to middle earth, gets blind, comes back to Numenor and then gets uh, taken advantage of by our right, right. That must be it. I, I think Tolkien <laughs> just forgot to write that. I yeah. don't know why. Yeah, thankfully. I mean, that's the obvious plot line, right? To go save like 30 villagers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thankfully, JD, Payne, and McKay were able to go and fill those holes for us. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. Anyway, yeah, Mir- Muriel did not hold on to uh, queenship uh, for very long at all because the 25th and uh, the last clean- king of Numenor, Arpharazan, usurps her her rule from the throne and he forces her to marry him. And and this would be bad enough as it is, if that was, if it ended there, but he was actually even her cousin, which yeah, they the were laws first permitted. cousins. Yeah. First cousins, which the law would not permit. So like this was, this was a guy that just used his, his power to really demonize all the laws that had been put in place by previous Kings and, and the faithful. Um, but it's interesting too. I don't know if this is, this is just something I thought of as we're going through this, but it seems that the names that are easier to pronounce are the ones that we see more often. Like they, they're more prominent in the story. They're, they mean more. Some of the names that are harder to pronounce don't have as much story to them. I don't know if that's completely true, but I mean, you look at most of the characters throughout Tolkien's, Tolkien's work. And I feel like a lot of the ones that do have a, a part to play, yeah, a fairly big part to play, or, or easier to to pronounce. But I could be completely wrong on that. Anyway, no, I um, I could definitely see that. It sounds. I mean, that's an interesting observation. I think I think that there's maybe some merit to that. Yeah, I think Tolkien was just so creative that he wanted to make some names that were just like I. You look at that and you're like, how in the heck am I supposed to say that? <laughs> but if you had to do that like 30 times in, but you know, in between a paragraph and as you're going through maybe a conversation, a dialogue, like that probably doesn't make much sense. So yeah. I don't know. Just an uh, an interesting aside, I guess. Uh, but yeah. again, Farzan had a desire for wealth and power and he found that power. He grew to be the mightiest and proudest king of Numenor and. The Silmarillion uh, says that he often brooded darkly in the thoughts of war, which is interesting because, again, Rings of Power, you see he's not wanting to go to Middle-earth. He's not wanting to go uh, go to war because he's trying to be more of this pol- politician guy. And, and he is at some, some level, but <clears throat> he once he became king, he realized that there was this guy, Sauron, who was claiming to be the king of men. Sauron, at this time, has started building up his forces in Bardur, and he is... You know, very proud of the forces that he's created. And so he's like, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and take this title as the the king of men. And Farzan is like, because he's so proud, like, that's not going to happen. So he musters up a huge army 
and sails to Middle-earth. And when he gets there, he forces Sauron into submission because his forces were so great that Sauron uh, saw, he was like, oh gosh, maybe I, I'm not the Lord of Kings, maybe, or Lord of Men's. Like, I have to, I'm going to submit to Farazan and his, his army because I don't think I can win this battle. And because of that, uh, Farazan says, well, you're going to be my, pretty much my, my, my captor, my slave, my servant, and I'm going to take you back to Numenor. And there, because Sauron is, is witty, he's crafty, he's deceiving, instead of becoming that slave, that, you know, servant, he becomes one of the king's closest counselors and begins to poison the mind of Farazan. And it's during this time where Farazan began doing blood sacrifices to Morgoth and became actively hunting the faithful. So this is the time when, you know, again, those people who, those elf friends are getting uh, constantly pursued and hunted down for their, for their faith. Which I wonder if, again, Michael got me thinking so much after our talk last week of you know, allegory and, and parallels yeah. to, yeah. to scripture. It's like, huh, I wonder if, if this is somehow paralleling like the early church being persecuted for their, for their faith in Christ, you know, but I don't know. Anyway, um, eventually. No, I, I, that's a good, that's a very good point. It yeah, dawned think, on me as you were saying it. I was like, oh, <laughs> Yeah, it was just kind of like reading that, like, man, I, I wonder if, again, he, without even thinking about it, maybe just because of his knowledge of scripture and his understanding of the history of, you know, the the Bible, the new the New Testament, he put that in either willingly or unwillingly. Um, that's kind of a parallel. But eventually, uh, he sails to the uttermost west, based off of what Sauron has been poisoning him with with these lies, because he wants to fight the Valar for immortality. He's proud, he's wealthy, and he says, I want to stay like this forever. I don't want to die. So he sails off to the west, and this eventually leads to the downfall of Numenor, which will be our, our next podcast. But thus ends the line of Kings of Numenor. Yeah, um, I think, you know, it's interesting to see how Numenor as like a society and as a community and country or whatever uh, how they really started to grow apart from each other and fracture and split from within. Uh, and then Sauron, when he becomes taken, when he becomes a captive, uh, he really plays off of that. I mean, he know like there's a divide and he knows just how to play that divide to get what he wants out of it. Uh, but that wouldn't have happened if there hadn't have been generations and thousands of years of this fra small fracture growing and growing and growing. Until the, I mean, Sauron came at the perfect time. If he was captured, you know, a few generations back, halfway through where it started to fracture, he may not have had the same success. Um, so it's just interesting to see how how it develops over time. Yeah, definitely, the influence Sauron had, especially over Farazan, is exactly what you'd expect from one of the best villains of all time. You know, it's crafty and deceiving and deceptive. Not, uh, he didn't want to just be there and be a smith. Um, like we <laughs> kind of get from Rings of Power. Also, Wait, he was so never. It's, it's not Galadriel's fault that Sauron has power. Yeah, I don't think it is. I really don't think it is. I think it's just his, uh, as Tolkien would say, the nurturing of evil by Morgoth. Oh, see, I thought it was because she was like, no, 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 you can't bang hammers and swords. You got to come fight with me. You're some long lost king. Come on, let's go to Middle Earth. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, I know we keep bashing the show, and, and again, if you like it, great. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's just 
every time I dive into the actual histories and the actual work, I just see so many inconsistencies that keep coming up, and I'm like, oh, gosh. But I'm thankful that I have uh, Tolkien's original writings to read from, and I will stick to that. Um, that's, and now. that's kind of something that I, I didn't really like the way Farazan was portrayed. I know he, there wasn't much of him. But even just this, and we'll go into Farazan a lot more next week or next time uh, when we do the Akalabeth. But Farazan, he kind of looked like he had a dad bod. He looked very <laughs> like politician-esque, which sure, he could be. But he's also like the mightiest and proudest of all the Numenorian kings. And so I kind of in my head picture like a souped up Boromir. Uh, yeah, with yeah. a darker side, you know, like that's how I imagined Farazan, where he's like kind of got the same pride that Boromir does, and he's probably even taller and more jacked and commands an even bigger presence, but he has that darker side to him that Boromir is, you know, he's fighting the whole time, but Farazan mm-hmm. is just dark and evil. And I just wish that they would have portrayed him a little bit better that way. Yeah, I've actually heard uh, somebody say that they thought. Farazan looked like an IT guy. <laughs> and so I was like, you know, that that checks out. And if that's the case, how in the heck is he supposed to like walk up to Sauron and be like, hey, bow to me and come back to <laughs> Numenor with me? I just don't see this Farazan doing that. I mean, supposedly that should be like season two, wouldn't it be? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you'd think so. I guess we don't know where they're going with it. They've promised uh, what we actually want to see, supposedly. But again, I don't see this guy, like you said, with his dad bod and his his big old beard. I, I love that and... IT guy description. I mean, like <laughs> you, go, you call it the Geek Squad, and Farazan shows up, and you're like, yeah. "Hey, old beard broke, and you uh, get this virus off my computer." <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. But this is yeah. Again, like we like we mentioned, we wanted to go through just the history of Numenor again, just to give you a. Uh, a better understanding of maybe what you're seeing in the show, but even if you're just curious about, you know, where does, where did the Dunedain come from? Where like going all the way down to Aragorn and his line and what's up with these long living men? Cause it's not really fleshed out a whole lot in Lord of the Rings and, but it's really True, quite yeah. an interesting story. And there's a lot of, obviously like we're talking about a lot of conflict and strife when it comes to death and mortality and immortality leading up to what we see in Lord of the Rings. And there's, I mean, this is very surface level, even though we kind of dove into it a little bit. This is still very surface level, and there's a lot more information on Numenor and uh, the tale of Aldarion and Erendis is a fantastic read. It's not too long. I recommend it to anybody that wants to kind of see more into the lives of the Numenorians and kind of their their culture and stuff. It's, yeah, this is still very surface level. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's always deeper caverns to Caverns, ca- caverns. There's caverns, fathoms, caverns. You can always caverns. you can always go f- deeper in in Tolkien's work is what I mean to say. There's always more layers. It's like the great Shrek once said: "You just peel uh, back the onion." Yes, that's right. <laughs> that was cringy, but that's all right. Yeah, a little bit. That's okay. Uh, on that note, Gondor calls for aid. <laughs> we're breaking out of the halls of Metaseld, and we're shouting, "Gondor calls for aid." 
Will you, Rohan, answer? If you enjoy the podcast, please light a beacon by sharing it with fellow friends and fans. Also, don't forget to like, 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 subscribe, and share a review. Please leave us a review of what you think of the podcast and what we're talking about. Or if there's something specifically you want us to talk about, you can email us at weckpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you want to share your Tolkien story, or if you want to give us your thoughts on Rings of Power, whatever it is, uh, we'll read it and we'll probably mention it here on the podcast too. So like we've talked about, what to expect for next week will be a deep dive into the Akelabeth and the downfall of Numenor, brought on by Sauron and Farazan. But until then, we thank you for joining us for some well-earned comforts. We bid you a very fond farewell. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. You have that memorized? Oh, yeah. It's catchy. It is.